Why the heck does it take so long to diagnose and get help for burnout? As I'm focusing this season to look at belonging through the lens of stress or impacted by burnout, I've published last week's episode introducing my observation and theory of what I call identity-related burnout. So let me give you a very, very short sum up of last week's episode as a reminder, but I strongly advise you, go and listen to the whole thing because the topic is so much more detailed and nuanced and I'm asking some thought-provoking questions, or at least that's what I hope I did for you. So here we go, in short. Once upon a time, the notion of a midlife crisis was the talk of the town. It was a phenomenon often associated with those who, by societal standards, appeared to have it all. Financial success, accomplishment, and influence. These individuals, however, reached more often than not at a certain age, a crossroads, where they questioned the true essence and meanings of their life. It was a time of reckoning, and they wondered, do I continue on this familiar path, or do I need to rebuild my life from the ground up? Growing up, I remember the generation before us used to look at these individuals with both curiosity and skepticism. To them, a midlife crisis was a luxury problem, something only few could afford. Poor little rich person, they would say, dismissing the idea of questioning one's existence as a trivial pursuit. Who has the time to wonder whether they're living a fundamentally good life? And uh, what does good even mean? But as the sense of time shifted, so did our understandings of these existential dilemmas. They became more and more common to have. The phenomenon known as midlife crisis transformed into something more nuanced and prevalent. Today, we all talk about burnout. But burnout isn't confined to a specific age group or specific people with a certain financial status. It's become everyday Joe's daily bread. It's more than stress. It's the constant overwhelm of life. It's the feeling that demands are ceaseless, time is elusive, and the link between achievements and self-worth is crushing. So dear listener, here we are today. Today, I'd like to dive even deeper and open up the discussion on why the heck does it take so long to diagnose and get help for burnout if it's such a common phenomenon all over the world? And being the designer that I am, I have to ask, is there anything we can do about it? Because I might have a suggestion or two here, and I would love to hear back from those that have been there. And what they, so if that's you, what do you remember about the time before having been diagnosed? So let's rock this. Salut and welcome to Worth Having, the podcast where we explore belonging and the question, how do I want to come home to myself? I'm Nick, and each episode will explore how to avoid becoming a burnout cliche and instead take yourself from good to great. Burnout doesn't have to be your reality. By connecting emotional intelligence with positive psychology, we can uncover untapped potential, create better opportunities, and answer that tough question, what's truly worth having in life. Join me, and together we're going to figure out how to take back work-life control. Because as a designer, I craft strategies for regenerative leadership, and I simplify the conversation around self-leadership and self-efficacy. 
because to belong means no one has to do this alone. And with that said, you're always welcome here because you do belong. Thanks for joining me on this adventure. Let's get started. Before we start the discussion part on what we can do, let's have a look on what a diagnosis even is. So I looked at the definition of the word and it read, very formal diagnosis, noun. Firstly, the identification of the nature of an illness or the problem by examination of the symptoms. Secondly, the distinctive characterization in precise terms of a genus, species or phenomenon. Yeah, great. <laughs> to sum it up, in more human words that we will all understand, a diagnosis is when a highly educated someone gives you a stamped certificate that you are not your normal you. In the context of needing a medical diagnosis, receiving a diagnosis refers always to something negative. Well, having confirmation that something negative is happening. Something is wrong. Something is broken. Something is not as it should be. And in the realm of burnout, that something is you. But let's not dig into what normal means or looks like because we don't have the time for that. Let's look into the time it takes to get a diagnosis. The internet says it takes on average one year in order to be eligible for a stable, reliable diagnosis for a chronic disease or chronic illness or chronic pain. And burnout in its simplest definition is chronic exhaustion. One year. You need to be unwell for an entire year starting from the point you see a medical professional. And since most of us do not like to admit that there's something wrong in the first place, we take our time to go and see a specialist. So it's much more than a year. But let's say even if we would instantly go to the doctor, why does it take so long? Well, obviously because it's complex and personal and we have to make sure we're not running in the wrong direction with our diagnosis. If you break your arm, we can see it's broken because we have a reference to what not broken looks and feels like. Burnout, however, is not a plainly physical illness. It's body, mind, and soul, and we are very unique snowflakes. There is no one-size-fits-all, and we can't scan the mind or soul yet. That's some sci-fi stuff for the future. All we're stuck with right now is measuring the physical parameters our body offers us. But in the meantime, we need to do something else. We need to do something to shorten this incredibly long period of suffering. And it is suffering because before we have a diagnosis, most don't share their unwell being. They remain alone. So in the meantime, what can we do? To me, it sounds obvious that the at least temporary solution must be self-evaluation. After all... I know me best and you know you best. And if things are going wrong on a continuous and reoccurring basis, wouldn't it be nice if there was a framework to guide us through a self-evaluation process to help us gain mental clarity about our emotional state in order to say with more confidence. <laughs> yeah, and I realize confidence um, might not even be an appropriate word to use in this context, but at least to say more self-assured. I am heading into a burnout. Here is what is happening to me. 
What can I do to prevent this? Who can I address to help me? Now, first, let's go back to burnout and how it sneaks up on so many of us. We might not have a clear picture of a healthy mind and soul yet, but there's plenty of data, stories, and reoccurring patterns to show what quote-unquote broken feels like. And nature loves repetition, after all. So shall we explore further? Burnout kicks in when life's relentless challenges become a never-ending cycle and the good times in between those bad cycles become less frequent until they're not happening at all and the rough life becomes permanent. In that case, the behavior we came up with to deal with the stress, the role that we were happy to play for a while, eventually takes over. Our temporary performance becomes our permanent identity. And that's hard. Not being yourself on a constant basis is hard. It's draining and it is very little rewarding if all you get for it is money. Worse, if all you get in return is just, you're just getting by and you are barely making ends meet. So we established that when it comes to diagnosing, we're stuck on medical documentation of what an unhealthy and broken body looks and feels like. And we are forced to find the source of our unwell-being. And we do have the documentation details of those that have been through burnout. So let's break those down. Let's break down what stories and experience tell us about the anatomy of burnout. Here's the anatomy of the physical burnout. So a healthy body is able and it uses its energy to make use of its ability. Sure, we all have different energy levels and movement preferences, but we fundamentally enjoy being active. Physical exercise keeps us healthy and good health makes us want to be physically active, like a ping pong game. In burnout, that desire for activity disappears. It's exhaustion, plain and simple, starting with a dwindling energy supply. First, less energy, then none at all. And ignoring the signs leads to severe symptoms with the body shutting down organs or functions. It's not just passively conserving energy, it's actively harming itself, rendering us unable to function. The body switches from passive disagreement to active sabotage. In full blown out burnout, many can only rest, sleep to combat fatigue, and when awake, barely manage more than idle rest with open eyes. So... As nature likes to follow pattern, it's not shocking to see that mental and emotional burnout follow a similar, if not the same path. It starts with reducing capacity to function healthily, shutting down, and finally, potentially, self-harming. This is what a mental burnout looks like. Our mind is the organ that makes us interact with the outside world. Our mind filters and evaluates what, where, when, and how to engage in social and community life. And as humans, we thrive through connections. If the expression of a healthy, able body is action, then the expression of a healthy, able mind, well, it's optimism. Optimism is the belief that the future holds promise, 
that interacting with the world is worth it. However, much like the exhausted body barely stays awake, the weary mind struggles to remain present and struggles to remain hopeful. Following the pattern set by physical burnout, pessimism isn't the sole expression of a broken mind. Pessimism is only like bodily fatigue, a shortage of energy for positive outcomes. The real danger to the body is when it starts self-harming and actively destroying itself. And for the mind, that translates into the simple fact that pessimism is simply too passive to do that. The equivalent to harming itself through developing something like coronary disease, for example, the equivalent to that for the mind, that is cynicism. So let me give you a definition. Cynicism is a skeptical and distrustful attitude or belief characterized by a general lack of faith in the sincerity, motives, or intention of others. It often involves a tendency to view actions, statements, and situations with suspicion, expecting ulterior motives or hidden agendas. Or another, again, more human words, cynicism destroys the one thing we need most for connection, the one thing we need most to feel like we're thriving. Cynicism destroys trust. As stress increases and we struggle to keep with the mental demands, we get weary and perspectives start shifting. Generally, we are creatures of self-preservation. Instead of self-reflecting, we usually turn against others first. Cynicism becomes a shield against disappointment. And disappointment is nothing else but our reaction to unfulfilled optimism. We first start mistrusting the motives of our co-humans. The skepticism infiltrates relationships, making us doubt others' authenticity. We question compliments, we question affection, and we question goodwill gestures. And sometimes we even question whether our goodness, our optimism is being taken advantage of. And cynics go even further. Cynics expect the worst. They point out irregularities, point out flaws, and they expect, they really expect hidden agendas. In that case, we end up withdrawing, detaching, and distancing ourselves from social interaction, from group or family activities, and build a resistance to new experiences. A healthy mind seeks to expand. A tired mind seeks to preserve. And a cynic mind seeks to destroy. Yeah, I know, this sounds dramatic. But consider the cynic's favorite tools, irony and sarcasm. Irony speaks one thing but means another. Irony can be funny, but more so, it's bittersweet. Because irony is always about circumstances and situations. Sarcasm does the same, except it's making things personal. It's a device to mock someone or convey contempt. Sarcasm is personal. Using irony to mock or convey contempt, it claims to be amusing. But it's actually just hurtful. Both irony and sarcasm stem from a desire to shield ourselves from emotional pain. But in the end, all we're left with is a loss of idealism. We start distrusting others, interpret everything negatively, criticize the works of others, and are being hurtful through sarcasm. Cynicism is a coping mechanism that resists vulnerability and change. 
hindering the one expansion a healthy mind craves. So we stop resonating with our environment and other people. We start being disconnected. Cynicism does not believe in the goodness, the worthwhile engagement with the world and its humanity. So do you think I sound dramatic yet? Well, I'm not done yet. And I dare you to bear more. Let's move on to the soul, or what I'd like to call the death of the soul. What is physical ability and a zest for life to a healthy body is self-efficacy to a healthy soul. And what permanent debilitating exhaustion is to the body is the loss of self-efficacy to the mind. Self-efficacy is the belief in our ability to accomplish tasks and achieve goals. It's a cornerstone of mental well-being. However, when burnout knocks on our mind's door, this vital belief slowly ebbs away, mirroring the physical decline that we dread. Here's how the erosion unfolds. Just as our bodies are sturdy and resilient when we face life's challenges in the beginning, so we start with a sturdy, resilient spirit. But as stress levels rise, just like in burnout's physical counterpart, overwhelming our cognitive and emotional capacities, slowly but surely we burn the candle at both ends. The outcome? Mental fatigue creeps in, affecting focus, memory, and decision-making loss when it comes to ourselves. Like the body's vulnerability to illness, negative self-talk sneaks in making us question our abilities and worth. We start avoiding more, worry about potential failure more, and we can't muster motivation because there's no more enthusiasm. We begin to socially isolate, turning what was intended as a retreat into a lonely place where seeking support feels out of reach, even shameful sometimes. Much like the weary body struggles to stay awake, the soul barely manages to extend kindness, compassion, and love inward to ourselves. Our self-efficacy serves to engage in internal connection with our skills, goals, and values, with the positive impact we want to have on environment and relationships. Its loss spells self-destruction in our relationship with ourselves. We lose the ability to engage with the world because we can't connect with our inner selves. We don't have our own backs anymore. So psychology teaches us all behavior happens to achieve an emotional result. And if those positive emotions are not happening, like ever, then life doesn't just feel not rewarding. It feels draining and besides the point. Burnout makes you feel like everything is beside the point. Yeah, and so reflecting back and reading back my journals from the time in my burnout, I felt varying degrees of the symptoms mentioned earlier. Mild burnout felt like mild expressions of these issues or sometimes even only isolated in just one area. But the severe episodes... (laughs) The bad flares, the bad flares are all of these symptoms at once. And that's one really shitty, chaotic cocktail to digest. 
However, there's one pivotal moment that shifted me from deteriorating health to a path of healing. Sitting at my therapist's office one day, she suddenly said, you give a lot. You're an incredibly generous person to everyone around you. I wonder, can you apply some of it to yourself? I remember this moment so vividly because between all the, (laughs) what felt like very repetitive, emotional blah blah of getting to know each other. Yes, I know. (laughs) I used to call it emotional blah blah. Anyways, in between all of that, this woke me up because my brain could not compute the question. Expats and international folks living abroad might resonate. Sometimes, after a long day, you understand every word someone says to you in a different language. But this sentence as a whole just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. You're exhausted and on sensory overload. And that's how it felt to me. I was on overload and I was stunned. All I could stammer was, I I don't understand the question. So (laughs) my therapist repeated the same thing in two other languages and I broke down in tears, telling her that she broke my brain, which is literally the worst thing that I can imagine. I told her that I understand every single word, but that the entire concept made no sense to me from whichever side I looked at it. In the end, it took me weeks to put into words why I could not apply generosity onto myself, and then it took years to learn how to change that. Yet, in the immediate aftermath of her initial question, one emotion that repeatedly surfaced, that was anger. It made me incredibly angry to think about generosity and angry at her to even suggest that my life and my actions, that everything I did and everything that led me to feel burnt out was fueled by generosity. That was an insane way of looking at it. And clearly... She couldn't be a very good therapist for saying this, or so I thought. Generosity triggered me so badly that I could only think of her as dumb or insincere, fishing for more emotional blah blah that I did not see going anywhere at the time. During burnout, everything I did all day long, everything I had to do, all the responsibilities, And people relying on me did not receive generosity from me. They were my obligations. They were everything I had to do. Everything that had to be done. And it had to be done exactly like this. If possibly better. But (laughs) since I was not able to provide better. So this had to do. And none of it was done out of generosity. After all, I mean, what is generosity even? It's for people that have so much, they can give it away and not mind the absence of it, whatever it might be. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) so I need to breathe into this for a second. All this 
is really hard to remember and does not fill me with particularly good feelings. But at the same time, wow, am I glad this is not me anymore. And when I think of what I had to do to leave this place, honestly, I feel very proud of myself. I was afraid life as we were living it would fall apart if I dropped my balls. And frankly, it did. Everything crumbled to pieces, you know, like a Jenga tower that you've been hollowing out for too long. Except that it wasn't all doom and ruins afterwards. Life after burnout makes you a more resilient, more boundary-enforcing, kick-ass person. And yeah, as an interior designer, I've had also my fair share of experiences. And they've provided me with unique, intimate insights, not just into people's homes, but lifestyles and personalities. And it's remarkable how often I encountered clients teetering on the brink of burnout. Some recognized it when they hired me, while others realized it only after our collaboration. The most glowing reviews, however, came from those clients with whom our work went beyond simply beautifying their homes. They were the ones where we delved into conversation about what needed to change for them to fall back in love with their lives within the walls that they call home. Or let me say it this way. You only love your home as much as you love the life that is happening within. So some clients approached me with a desire to make their homes reflect the image they projected when they weren't at home. Unsurprisingly, these clients often didn't feel profoundly affected by the transformation, no matter how stunning the design. Their connection to their space remained as distant and unemotional as when we started. From their emotional standpoint, these projects lacked personal significance. But the other clients, the happy ones, they told me at our first meet about how life was hard and how they needed to change something that gave them a break from their version of heart and gave them a break from that person that they had to be in the outside world. They wanted to discover or rediscover or play around with the idea of what else? Those were the ones that would not stop talking about me to their friends and would refer me over and over again. Funnily enough, some of those clients took ages, and I mean like up to years, to finish the actual work. Because we started with the one thing that would make the biggest impact first. And once a life started running differently, started flowing better Finishing the rest could simply take time. No more pressure. Now, interior design and the ability to hire a professional to do it for you is by its nature a luxury expenditure. You need to be financially affluent to go down this route. What I noticed as the biggest difference between the happy and the, how should I call them, the unmoved, emotionally detached clients The biggest difference was the level of generosity, not towards me, but themselves. The transformed happy clients gave themselves time and space and the option to question and play and then explore, and it became all about fun, passion, and shared joy. 
generosity expanded simple monetary expenditure. In fact, most solutions we came up with were, from a price perspective, really cheap. The unmoved ones, for lack of better words, they were stiff, or let's call them rigid. Their investment had to fit a certain image, represent a particular something, and yield a return on investment. It was about impressing the people that visited the home rather than being loved by the ones that lived inside the home. And the sentence that comes to mind here is, some people are so poor, all they have is money. All my clients were financially affluent, but only few felt truly abundant. The happy ones could draw on an inner wealth of positive, life-reaffirming emotions, and it was about their most loving version of intimacy. For the others, the design was stunning, but since we built it on a performance and wanting to look competent, it felt detached, distant, it felt cold, or even transactional. So again, all my clients were affluent. Not all of them came from a place of abundance. While they were all generous in their spending, the question remained, what fueled that generosity? So there's no more guessing here. Imagine having a framework, a kind of early warning system that tells you when you're on the brink of burnout. What if this tool considered not just your actions, but the emotional circumstances surrounding them? I'm talking about assessing your giving and generosity in two different lights. One, stemming from genuine abundance. I have enough to give. I can take my time. I can experiment and I do want to play. And the other, driven by external pressure. Oh, it has to work. It has to look a certain way and it has to. And then fill in whatever your pressure button of choice is. Burnout isn't just a random outcome. It's a symptom of something deeper. To make sense of it, we need to explore the actions that led us there. And more importantly, the mental and emotional backdrop against which those actions were executed. So tell me, how does that sound? Yes, I know, I know, I know. The term abundance often gets thrown around in a more esoteric conversation. But today, we're giving it a more grounded context. Abundance is about having more than enough in various aspects of life, not just material wealth. It's a state where you don't constantly feel like you're running on empty. Generosity, on the other hand, is the beautiful act of giving, sharing and supporting others selflessly. It embodies empathy and compassion and a desire to positively impact the lives of those around us. So, Abundance is a state of being or condition where the person in that state genuinely feels they have more than enough, but it's passive and it's an emotional reflection about the availability of resources, whether they are material, emotional or spiritual. And it is rooted in an attitude of positivity and gratitude towards oneself or one's own life and circumstances. Abundance is internally facing, whereas generosity is an action or behavior built around sharing with a focus on contributing to other people's well-being. 
Its focus is empathy and compassion towards others, and it has a desire to make a positive impact. Generosity is facing the external world. Abundance is about self-efficacy and generosity about interconnectedness and community. Abundance is self-focused, whilst generosity is other-focused. One of the main reasons we end up in burnout, however, is our one-sided overgiving. And if that is happening, then we can't just look at the behavior by itself. Whilst in itself, generosity is a very noble quality, it is also a thin-lined balancing act. And people who are overly generous might neglect their own needs. Actually, the people who end up in burnout due to being overly generous definitely neglected their own needs. And that is leading to emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion. All of this is a dangerous cocktail of too loose boundaries, too much emotional taxpaying, and some very mismatched resources. So here's my proposition for you, to you, today. And please, let me know what you think. Instead of relying on medical diagnosis that typically come after reaching a critical burnout point, because we're only measuring the quote-unquote hard data of the physical body, why not consider generosity and abundance as early indicators? These metrics can shed light on the question under which mental and emotional circumstances has the giving been practiced. A lack of abundance and an inability to be generous can serve as warning signs. By recognizing and addressing the signs through self-evaluation, we might just prevent burnout from progressing to a critical stage that requires drastic medical intervention. What do you think about this idea? So how could we build a framework of self-evaluation around these two to help people come to an assertive statement about their own well-being? And what are those questions we need to ask ourselves? Here's my offer to you. I wrote some down. Firstly, about the lack of abundance. Feeling an ongoing sense of scarcity in various aspects of life can be a significant red flag for burnout. When individuals constantly feel like they lack time, resources, support, or opportunities, it puts them at a higher risk of burnout because they are more likely to experience chronic stress and overwhelm. Not having, lacking is stressful. Some ways this lack of abundance can manifest will include things like time crunch, when you constantly find yourself rushing from task to task without sufficient time to rest or recharge. That is an indication that you're running on empty and might be heading for burnout. Emotional drain. You're constantly struggling to manage your own emotions, feeling emotionally depleted or unable to find joy in activities you used to enjoy. That could be a sign that you're running into burnout. And then good old work-related stress. Feeling like you're constantly drowning in work, unable to complete tasks, or experiencing a lack of accomplishment despite your efforts, that can point toward burnout. Abundance is an emotional state. So how do you feel and how are those emotions 
I don't want to say positive. So let's say, how are these emotions satisfying and life-giving? Number two, our inability to be generous. Generosity doesn't just pertain to material giving. It includes emotional support, time, and energy given to others. If you notice a decline in your ability to be generous or helpful to others, it might be an early warning sign of burnout. And I don't mean to I don't mean it to be judgmental. You can't give. But because you can't give, you really shouldn't be giving. So here are my points on that. Withdrawal. You find yourself becoming more isolated and less willing to engage with others or less willing to offer assistance. It could be due to emotional exhaustion and an ability to extend generosity. You find yourself lacking empathy and ability to emphasize or connect with others' needs and struggles might indicate that your emotional reserves are depleted. You can't connect with them because you can't connect with yourself. And that is a very common precursor to burnout. Neglected relationships. Yeah, failing to maintain healthy relationships due to a lack of energy or emotional availability, those can be early signs that burnout is looming. So is there any joy in your giving? Does a silly Pollyanna sentence like, throw kindness around like it was glitter. Yeah. Does that make you smile and laugh? Or does it just annoy the crap out of you? Does your giving make you actually feel better? Because only if it does, only then it is true generosity. And if it's not, you have to be generous with yourself and admit to yourself that you can't be generous right now. So I get it. It might seem like a lot for one episode, but hey, if we're diving into the work-life balance theme this season, we need to look at all angles, right? Burnout, as personalized as it gets when you're experiencing it, becomes less private once you have a diagnosis. I genuinely hope people aren't keeping it to themselves, but are taking action. I hope the very first action you take is reaching out to someone. It's about reaffirming that sense of belonging, about realizing you're not in this alone. The purpose of receiving a diagnosis is, after all, knowing, but also reassurance. Having a diagnosis is about being able to go and get help, not just having to deal with it alone. But before we even get to that point, awareness is key. There is understanding information, there is knowing what to do, and then there is practicing doing the actual thing. I'd like to believe that there's a beautiful part to it all. By becoming aware of these signs and practicing self-evaluation, we can halt burnout in its tracks. I've seen it countless times. It's not about drastic changes. It's about nurturing a balance between giving and receiving and taking pleasure in and receiving from the act of giving. That means savoring having the resources. 
savoring that you are actually affluent enough to give away and savoring that you are able to be generous and be generous with pleasure. Learning to be generous, rooted in genuine, no BS abundance is what ultimately saved me from feeling burnt out. And it even built the greatest source of joy within me and for me right now. And now, (laughs) obviously, that I'm heavily biased, I see this confirmed in everyone I talk to. When facing burnout, the outer circumstances have to change, but not as much as everyone thinks. It's more our ability to choose to see and choose to feel a better reality that makes the greatest difference in people. Everyone I know who has come out the other side of burnout still works and earns a living, still gives to others, still participates in participate <laughs> still bordel, still participates in society. They do all the things they did before, maybe even with more vigor than before, just with less. <laughs> and I do not know how to call it differently, but with less bullshit in their lives. Once in burnout, it forces a complete halt to the life you once knew. It demands a radical simplification. And while that can certainly help, I firmly believe we shouldn't have to reach that point in the first place. Instead, we should be asking ourselves, where am I deceiving? And I mean, to the point that I'm bullshitting myself when it comes to my giving and the resources I have. Not just wishful thinking, but how do I actually feel and think about my responsibilities and the way I'm participating in life? Burnout recoveries are acutely aware of this question. And self-evaluation, my friends, becomes a practice of healthy living. But for it to really hit home, it needs awareness, self-awareness to be precise. And yeah, again, I know, I know, self-awareness, it's a term thrown around a lot, but I think it deserves more unpacking for those who haven't made it a habit yet. Should we talk about it next week? I actually hope you join me next week again, because I will give you another way of thinking about self-awareness and how it functions and what it's there for. And before I say goodbye, one last comment I'd like to make. There are a million ways to make changes, privately and socially. But the one thing, the one way I want to contribute is fighting cynicism. I've lived in seven different countries now. And no matter where I go, I've encountered this cultivated, man-made cynicism People constantly telling themselves and others how terrible the world and life and people are, how everyone's out to get them, and how we need to work ourselves to exhaustion just to survive. This is not to say that there aren't horrendous things happening that need our attention and our activism to create change. Sure, there are real risks out there, and yes, we need to address them, with activism and attention. But here's the catch. Cultivating cynicism and being constantly negative doesn't help. 
It doesn't help us, it doesn't help society, and it certainly doesn't help combat burnout. Actually, it's one step into propagating burnout even more. So I've chosen to cultivate instead a genuine generosity, both within myself and towards others. And let me tell you, dismantling cynicism has become my personal mission, (laughs) one I'm willing to fight for openly and even guerrilla style. So I believe it's worth it. And I know I said a lot. And if you made it so far, let me thank you for staying with me, giving me your attention. And I hope you join the discussion. I hope you give me feedback. And I also hope I see you again next week. Au revoir et à bientôt, c'est Nicole. Wait, 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 before you leave. Are you looking for a fresh approach to well-being and resilience? Then let's partner up. I'm here to help individuals and companies rethink and finally implement well-being practices that equip people with the tools they need to facilitate their own joie de vivre and prevent burnout. The goal is to enhance individual potential and life satisfaction so that we can come together as better teams, families, or communities and create powerful, positive impact. Reach out now and let's discuss our collaboration, because belonging is always worth having.